Hey everybody, if you're into crypto and you're into security, holy heck, this is going to be an episode that is a must listen for you on every possible front. Uh, before we jump in, we talk to Daniel Galancy of Atacama. I'm going to talk to you about the amazing people that make this podcast happen and all our sponsors and supporters. So first of all, I have to give a huge shout out and a thank you to the friends over at Veeam Software. The reason why I do that is because they've got you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs, for your business and continuity and recoverability. You got it. You want to recover it. You want to save it. You want to preserve it. You want to not even need to do it. You can rest assured because you've got everything covered by V. Now, I say this in jest, but in truth, it's really a fantastic uh, set of platforms, products, and an amazing team that's behind it. So if you want to find out more about everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's on-premises, virtualization, in the cloud, VMware, Hyper-V, you name it, even cloud native, not only to back it up, but to then recover it fully orchestrated using Veeam's Disaster Recovery Orchestrator. Holy moly, I wish I could have had this when I was doing DR back in the day. At any rate, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. It's that easy. Just go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and you can get yourself uh, everything you need for your data protection needs. So check it out. Thank you to the folks at Veeam. Uh, also, hey, while you're recovering that amazing data center or cloud or cloud native environment that you backed up with Veeam, don't forget to enjoy a nice, tasty, hot, diabolical coffee. Because if you want the best devilishly tasty good coffee around, the most diabolically awesome swag, that all creates opportunities to move the world forward by doing good. Uh, you go to diabolicalcoffee.com, uh, and I'm actually the co-founder of the of the company, and it's something we do where, number one, we have great coffee that we have produced and roasted fresh when you order. On top of that, you buy any of the swag using the code DISCOPOSSE, D-I-S-C-O-P-O-S-S-E, and portions of the proceeds from the uh, profit go to charity to make sure that we can enable people to get access to education and technology who are in underrepresented communities. So something that I've got a real personal passion for. So do go check that out. And of course, the final thing I do have to say is if you're involved at all in connecting with people, uh, whether it's in technical sales, whether in product management, product marketing, uh, or even just general marketing, and you want to learn how to better connect with people in a discussion, in a conversation, and in the way you describe your products or services, you can go to velocityclosing.com where you can download right now the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. It is literally a purpose-built book that's so fantastically popular. I've actually been amazed by, by how many folks have enjoyed it and given great feedback. Uh, so thank you to all those folks. Uh, we're actually going to be running a super special right now. It's called 555. So heading into May 5th, I'm actually, it's not just $27, but we're going $5 for the entire bundle. Because we've had such good luck, uh, we decided to drop the price until May 5th. So if you buy now, go to velocityclosing.com and you can get the bundle for five bucks. Seriously, just get it, it's five bucks. You get the book, you get access to the audiobook, super cool, and you also get access to monthly AMAs for coaching. 
This is hosted by me, uh, and uh, we've we've got a lot of really great feedback again. So, anyways, check it out. It's literally five bucks. Go get it. Trust me, you'll love it. Go to velocityclosing.com before May fifth, and you'll be able to get your whole bundle for five bucks. It's a super special. So get there right now. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Daniel Glancy is the CEO of Atacama, and they are doing really fantastic stuff around scalable file level security to protect sensitive data. So it doesn't require passwords and doesn't require servers. So this is really, really crazy cool stuff. We get really deep into the technology of how it works. We also explore tons of stuff around the impact of, of crypto and, and the whole idea of blockchain, what it's good for, what it's not good for. We talk about Bitcoin. This is one of the most wide reaching and enjoyable conversations I've had, especially if you're into crypto at all, if you're into anything around the idea of security, this is a beautiful combination of those two things. So check it out. This is Daniel Glancy about a comma. My name is Daniel Galancy, and I'm the CEO of Atacama, and you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. You're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Uh, so, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining. I've I've had the advantage of listening to a lot of your content. You have a spectacular radio voice, so I'm excited about the chance to uh, to have this on here. But beyond that, you are a, a wicked smart uh, human, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Uh, so for folks that are brand new to you, if you don't mind, introduce yourself, uh, and then we're going to talk about Atacama, like kind of the challenges that you're solving. And you've got a lot of neat things that we're going to explore. Luckily, we got some some good time in front of us. Sure, I'm Dan. I'm some guy who uh, right now lives in upstate New York and works in a laundry room. Is that a good intro? Or I always love that. Yeah, for deep, folks that are watching the more, the video, they get to enjoy it fully. But it's like the audio one. They're like, "What is he talking about?" Like, watch the YouTube. That's where the fun is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I in my in my normal life. Uh, I run a terrific software company called Atacama. We make uh, encryption software. Uh, it's really distributed key management software, and I could talk about what the, what I mean by that when we get get further into it. Um, we are normally based in New York City. Right now, we are distributed because of COVID, and I'm working at a house in upstate New York, and the only space for an office was in the laundry room, so, uh, <laughs> which makes for an, it makes for an amusing background. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the quick intro. Now, the, the challenges we've got right now, which is like my favorite thing to tell people, it's like, I actually saw a great title in an article the other day. It says the, the S in IOT stands for security. And the, perf- the first thing you think is like, well, there is no S. Exactly. Like, so we're security for whatever reason, especially encryption, it is such an unfortunate afterthought, and it is so vastly underappreciated for how necessary it is. And I looked, you know, I've been studying what you and the team are doing, and you know, some people have a a, a bit of an awareness of the idea of zero trust networking, but that assumes that everything's traveling, and that's where the encryption's needed. But it's needed everywhere. So, if you want to, let's talk about your particular solution and, and why it's really important. 
Sure. So, uh, and I think what you've what you've said about zero trust networking, you know, ZTNA um, is, I think, where most people focus when they hear the word zero trust. Uh, but you're exactly right. Zero trust is really a, a conceptually about far more than that. And one of the big problems that we have is the way we deal with data at rest. You know, not just data in transit. I would almost, I would almost say almost uh that the you know the problem of securing data in transit is a i'm going to use air quotes here a solved problem uh, insofar as there are an abundance of very good solutions out there and if they are applied properly you should be in good shape whereas securing data at rest becomes a much a far dicier proposition and uh if you think about for example just the average user at home, I want let's make this sort of very accessible to 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 any you know any random person who could be listening. You have a computer; it has files, yeah. right? Um, you have unstructured data; it's sitting in files, right? You have Word docs, you have Excel files, you have PDFs, you've got your tax returns, you've got this thing, you've got your grocery list. Nobody cares about your grocery list, hopefully, unless you're buying some weird groceries. Um, but how is all that stuff secured? And the answer in general is that it's secured with some sort of parameter. Whether we think about it as a parameter or don't think about it as a parameter, that's what it actually is. When you are you know, merely logging into your computer, you are getting past some set of gates, some parameter. And once you're past those gates, you're in, it's open sesame. And the problem is if the you isn't actually you, right? What if it's not Eric Wright, but fake Eric Wright? Right, not EW, but FEW. <laughs> right, <laughs> so EW is supposed to get in, right? But FEW is not. And if FEW sneaks in somehow, then it's open sesame for FEW. And that means that you know you got a hundred thousand files on that particular system, and that could be a local machine, that could be a network map, that could be something in the cloud. It doesn't matter where it anywhere, right? Once it's open sesame, it's open sesame, and then fake Eric Wright has, FEW has access to everything. And that's a big problem. So how do we mitigate that? And the answer is, a great way to do it would be to encrypt each file, file by file, all 100,000 files, each one with its own unique password. Sounds good. <laughs> Very difficult to memorize 100,000 unique high strength passwords, or high entropy passwords. Uh, you can ask your users to do it, you're not going to get very far. You're also going to create other problems in terms of sharing those files. You know, the whole accounting group needs to access one particular network share. What do you do? Well, how do you deal with that? What do you do? Right? Um, so that solution doesn't work that well. But what you can do, and what we've done, is you can encrypt each file, file by file, and then take the keys and split them into pieces, shards, we call them, and take the shards and distribute them amongst various devices. And then when it's time to decrypt a file, you can utilize those shards to decrypt the file. And you have one shard on your laptop and one shard on your phone, one shard on your iPad, and one shard is on your colleague's phone, et cetera, et cetera. And then you need a quorum of those shards, say two of four to decrypt. And by having two of those four shards, you're in, right? So Eric Wright, or Eric Wright gets access and that's open sesame for him. He should have access to all 100,000 files, but if fake Eric Wright gets in, and then fake Eric Wright is challenged to decrypt a particular file before accessing it. Fake Eric Wright, hopefully, 
most likely does not have the requisite number of devices right. to access that particular file. And that's the concept of just of using distributed key management in the context of encryption. It's a very long-winded way of me saying it's a very strong second layer of protection and it's a zero trust mechanism of of preventing attackers from accessing your data. Well, and it's it's interesting when you talk about the you know, apply a complex password. Even if we were to do it just at, let's just say one file, one disk, or just like a single unit. I remember back in the day, cause I'm like, I'm, I took all these crazy certifications over my career and the Microsoft certification. I said, God bless them. They figured this out. They actually gave a proper answer one time. It was about security. And it said, how do you secure a pa uh, an account in Active Directory? And it said, number one was uh, make sure it's got a minimum length. Number two, make sure it has a minimum life so that he had to set it to expire. And number three was to set it to have complexity requirements. And the answer, if you chose all three, was wrong because they knew the human re answer is if you make it complex and you make it expire all the time, then someone's going to write it down on a piece of paper and put it beside their laptop. And so they said, in fact, you're better to choose two of three and just make sure that you've got other auditing tools wrapped around it, which was interesting. But then that's like one thing, that's one password. Well, like you said, we're sharing resources. I've got a laptop. I'm going to go to a coffee shop. I'm going to connect to Wi-Fi. I'm going to do all these things. It's it's not the fact that data is moving off my laptop to a place and I need to protect it on the way. It's the fact that I'm on a, a network with an exposure point where someone can now get on and have unencrypted potential access to that local system. And that's, we, we really get our, we get wrapped around the axle on like the NSA is going to sniff it on the way somewhere. <laughs> like well, number one, you're it is not moving your, your data around is, is not a cape. You can't do it. Like we have to email, we have to do certain things. And, but meanwhile, 99.999% of the life of any object, any file, any whatever is at rest. That's where it needs to be protected. You're preaching to the choir. And I, 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 I think you're right. I'm just not that worried about the NSA man in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Me. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, first of all, I don't think they're really, I don't think that's the threat, right? I, I think that's the, that's the comic book threat right? right um that's not the real world threat uh or, or look maybe that's the privacy enthusiast threat right is that you're worried about about the nsa and i'm picking on i don't know i don't know why i'm picking on it but okay we could pick yeah up. i i i always hate that yeah. like i, I pick we, an example no, 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 walk you into this reasonable. tough conversation yeah, yeah no it's reasonable it's reasonable look i have i have tremendous respect for the folks of the nsa and they're they're, they're they have some truly brilliant folks uh, but ultimately, if you run a company, your risk is not the NSA, <laughs> right? Right. Your risk is is an ad is a, is an adversary, right? And if you're the average Joe, uh, even if you care about privacy, which I do, right? Uh, so the, let's separate privacy and security for a moment. We'll talk, we can talk about that that separation, right? Uh, most companies care about security more than they do about privacy. Most individuals. Uh, care about both, but I think there's more of an emphasis on privacy, um, and that 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 is what it is. Uh, 
if you're an individual who cares deeply about privacy, there are, there are an abundance of threats to your privacy. And I think focusing on the NSA as a threat is a bit of a red herring. Right. There, there, are a, there are a great many threats of far greater magnitude than the NSA. Well, the, and this is the interesting thing of, again, like we think of security has boundaries, right? We think of like, where's the, where's the layers of security? And, you know, it's physical access to the building. Then you know, let's assume let's talk. We're in an office. One day we'll be there again. But like I used to have this in my companies, and our corporate security people were very good. They'd say, "Okay, we're gonna we test access at the door. Okay, you need a card reader to get through the door. Great. Well, the sort of the cleaning staff, right? So they are in, and now they have access to your desk, which has a big old sheet of paper full of passwords on it, and they're not auditing logins. They don't. They don't know. Like it. It looks like EW's doing it. But it's FEW, the cleaning team, who's, you know, again, it's it doesn't need to be the NSA. It's there's so many ways in which, you know, there's no way to stop that from happening. Oh, what wait? There is. <laughs> you know, and that's we have this weird thing that if you put a lock on the door, that that's it. Like, oh, we're safe now. Like, oh, whew. like, no, no, you don't understand what bloody zero trust is. We call it zero trust for a reason. <laughs> So, yeah, it, right. and now this is a, it's a tough problem to solve. And I think what's even more challenging, it's a tough problem to make people understand that they have, unless they've been on the wrong side of an incident, a breach, whatever you want to say, right? So I'm curious, Daniel, like you, you chose to go into a very difficult arena and you're, you're, you're successful at it, but how did you how do those first discussions go when you tell somebody, look, you need this? And they're like, no, we think we've, there's a real unfortunate belief that people have got it sorted. Those discussions don't go. Uh, to, to, to answer your question in, in, in the most direct manner possible, uh, you have folks who understand that they need it and you have folks who don't. And uh, I think it's extraordinarily difficult to convince someone that they need this level of, of security if they don't understand what's going on. Uh, it's very difficult to, to, to educate a market. I think that's, that's an, if, you're, if your business relies upon the idea of educating people that they need you know, some particular thing, uh, it's not impossible. It just becomes more of an uphill battle. And the more right. edu... I think the right way to think about it is this, the more education you need, the more difficult it becomes. If you need to nudge people, if they need to be aware of like one additional fact and that fact is then presented to them, they're like, oh, I didn't know about that one additional thing that changes the whole landscape, right? Maybe, maybe you get there. But if you have to put, if you have to put someone through a, 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 a Microsoft certification course, yeah, right, or th then you, you got a problem. So we actually try try to avoid those those conversations i, I you know our uh, sales and marketing is not focused on on trying to convince people that they need this particular thing what we're trying to do is find the people who already know that they need it and say it exists because the biggest issue is really people just don't even know that it exists uh, and there are plenty plenty of people who do on the market is so big <laughs> The market is sufficiently large. The market of, of folks who do recognize the importance of this is sufficiently large that 
when I when I get to the part where I have to worry about educating more people in order to grow the market, I'll I'll already be in in terrific shape. Yeah, you'll be able to afford to build those campaigns. <laughs> right. So so yeah, I I, I I hope that 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 answers your question. Or the answer no, is we don't we don't we don't have those conversations. We avoid them. We avoid them like the plague. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. Like it's there is a very distinct and targeted audience. It's already out there. You know, that's why we have CISOs and we have these like I've been lucky enough through my career to see this arrive and and like get why it was necessary. But it was funny when it first came in, people were like, Why do they what is a CISO? You know, we had Sarbanes Oxley compliance became a thing, and you'd like, oh yeah, it's just a checkbox. You're like, No, you don't understand. That person just signed they are personally attributing themselves to our regulatory compliance, including security, including all these things. If we're in a breach, their name's on the contract. It's not a light duty thing. They are hyper aware of the risks that they're taking on when they do that. At least you bloody hope so. <laughs> like maybe, maybe they're not. It's and they just very this- difficult. Yeah. yeah, it's a very difficult seat. And I think anyone who 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 is willing to sit in that seat is incredibly brave. Um, and uh, one hopes that that particular person is also very wise <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and many of them are, right? Many of them are. Yeah. Yeah. The now this the interesting thing, of course, in the method by which you're solving it. You talk about distributed key. Uh, let's go into a couple of examples of of where that comes into play and how you actually manage it. Because I think that's also, when people hear that, they think like, oh, I'm going to have to carry like five devices. It's a whole, whole situation. Like, no, no, well, it's possible. We have the technology to make this process easier. <laughs> yeah, well, what we do is we implant a microchip in your left arm, a microchip <laughs> yeah. in your right arm, a microchip in your forehead, and a microchip in your in your left buttock. And those four, we call them A, B, C, and D. And but you know, if you have any two of those four, you're in. No, okay, wait, maybe that's not. Wait, I'm not supposed to talk about that, right? We're my, we're not my, quite there yet. Yeah, that's that's my the... marketing guy is gonna gonna get mad at me for talking about that. <laughs> um, no, uh, we're not there yet. Um, the reality is that, uh, and we can go back to the two of four example that that I gave before, and I think that's a good example. You already have two devices. Um, and you use them all the time. One is the computer that you use for work and the other is your phone. Right. And maybe you forget your phone at home, except right now, most people don't really leave their homes very much. <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> or their or laundry rooms. Uh, um, but, um, you know, people back in the day when, when, when society was a little bit more normal, even if, if you left your phone at home, you'd, you'd figure it out pretty quickly. You'd realize people are glued to their phones. Um, you you already have two devices, and that's a great start. So if you need two of four, right, and you have one shard of the key on the laptop on which you do your work, or the desktop on which you do your work, and then one shard of the key on your phone, you're already in pretty good shape. Why? Because if an attacker manages to get access to your computer, if the difficulty of getting access to your computer is X, right, let's call that some value X. The difficulty of, of an attacker getting access to both your computer and your phone is not 2x. It's x to the something, right? It's x, pick, you know, x to the n. Some, some much, much, it's far, far, far more difficult. Now, it's not impossible, right? In a targeted attack, 
it absolutely can happen. Right. Um, but you've you've raised the bar. You've made the the difficulty far greater than it had been in the past. Now, if you want to increase that to three devices, you've made it so you know you, you've you've reduced the probability of a successful incident to being uh, you know extraordinarily remote. Again, it's not impossible, but you've 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 changed it by orders of magnitude. Um, so just by having you know two devices in the mix and having the security around both of those devices be in play, you've you've upped the ante materially uh, for the attacker. Um, and yeah, hopefully, the and attacker will say. It, it that's the whole thing, right? It is computationally difficult. And there's no way around it that's not computational. You can't shortcut it versus like keep, you know, uh, user pass, a traditional like login password. I used to test this all the time. Just, you know, I don't need to send people on a phishing expedition to try and see if I expose them. I would just go to the, to the lab room, which has a weird phone number. And it could say janitor's closet. And you just pick a person, you just dial an extension. You say, hey, uh, this is Pete calling from the help desk. Looks like there may have been a problem. Can you just confirm what your password is? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. What's your username again? Ah, most people like just they're, it's calling from a corporate number. It's in the building. I'm at my desk. It's the help desk. They'll give it to you. They'll give it up faster than they would give a dollar for an ice cream on a hot day. And so there's, that's not a computational problem. But by making it a computational problem, you now you need a lot more than just that phone number from the janitor's closet and, and a dollar for your ice cream. That's right. And I think it's also it's tougher to social engineer. Yeah. Right. Because it starts to sound far more suspicious if it's um, hey, can you give me it sounds suspicious immediately if someone's saying give me a password. <laughs> exactly. It sounds even more suspicious if it's giving your password and now do some weird thing with your phone so that I have so that I have access to it. Again, yeah. some will fall for it. Some will. But the percentage just drops. And it just drops materially. So uh, you know by adding more, you know, people talk about one way to one way to think of, of security or praying or parameters around around protecting a piece of data is something you you know something you have something you are right something you are being biometric and nowadays we sort of combine the something you have with something you are right phones tend to have biometric capability in them um but security tends to rely still right, uh tends often relies still only on one of those two things and by making it rely on two of those two you know both of those things more than one of those th those things you've uh, you know, materially up the uh, up the difficulty for the attacker. It, it becomes a uh, you know, and uh, the classic. If you ask a if you ask somebody like, "What's your your mother's maiden name?" You know, "What's your first your your first pet?" Like the classic things. Like we use the same questions over and over again. And I was laughing. You talk to a security person. You say like, "What's your mother's maiden name?" And it's like three X Ash forty two, right. you know, <laughs> some Metallica name. lyrics, right. <laughs> some bizarre mm -hmm. thing. There's no way you could ever connect these two bloody things together, but like they know, like all right, this is the thing. <laughs> that's where that's where you use swear words. We're talking about swear words. That's right. <laughs> uh, because you know, if you, you you know the 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 phenomena of sim hacking, right? Um, 
you know, it's it's tough. It's one of the things. It's one of my favorite topics because I think it's such a it's such a it's a terrific attack. Yeah. Um, and there, there, there's so there's so little in the way of protection around it. Uh, you know, one of the one of the ways to what, there there are many things you can do to try to address it. Uh, amongst them is to to put a bunch of you know items in your profile that you know the 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 person on the other end of the phone would have to try to read back to you that they're not going to feel comfortable reading on the <laughs> phone, right? including, including swear words right uh and put put you know put those sorts of things uh embed that all over the place right complex characters all sorts of stuff that you can't read yeah on the phone right uh and that's not that's not the solution right that's you know one element you know, and this is the now the interesting thing is we can we get this we have you know sharded protection now how do you protect the life cycle of that shard and this is one thing i'm always curious so i i you know as an example i used i think it was google authenticator one of them i, I don't mean i'm not going to pick on them necessarily it was my my own fault right i had it on my phone something went sideways you know, hey, I back it up to iCloud. iCloud's, you know, safe. Like I can, I, it's encrypted, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel comfortable with putting it there because I know it's like one of many factors. Well, my phone gets wiped because of some problem I bump into. Okay, get a new phone. Restore from iCloud. Ah, my Google Authenticator is empty. It didn't actually back up. And I'm like, huh, it's probably by design that they did it that. It is by design. Yeah. It's by design. And then, of course, I go to the other system that I've enabled multi-factor authentication using an authenticator. And they say, well, we actually can't unlock it because we want you to have complete trust that we have no ability to do that. So I literally ended up with this orphaned off like software product <laughs> that I can never unlock because I've lost the original key. My fault. I didn't have the backup like the the actual hash i should have so my bad i totally own that i but it was funny like i literally backed myself i painted myself into a, a proverbial corner there's no way out of and i'm like oh this is all it worked but how do you protect normal people from making that simple mistake and thus not trusting themselves to do it which yeah, is i, I think why it's tough to adopt i have to disagree with you it's not your fault um, and the reason I say it's not your fault is that a system needs to be designed uh, in, in a way that balances security with redundancy. And that's very difficult. That doesn't excuse that, that doesn't excuse anybody from doing it. Uh, one of the things that Google Authenticator, I believe, didn't used to have, but now they most certainly do, is the ability to export right. all of those all of those TOTP uh, codes. Right. So now you have the ability to export them, I believe, 10 at a shot. So you have to install the Google. If, if you lose your phone, you got a problem. Uh, if you uh, if you get the new phone, if you're replacing a phone, then you can export, you know, 10 at a shot. Uh, yeah. Or you can use some you can when you're scanning that barcode, you can scan it on on your phone and your tablet. Right. Right. And yeah. Have, yeah. Right, and then have the ability to recover that way. Now. 
it is it, it is wise that they do not enable uh, any sort of backup. Um, and you know the problem with one of the problems with things like iCloud or you know in a, in, a, in the Microsoft uh, enter, enterprise sphere, you know, roaming profiles. Right. It's the same. It's the same thing, right? We're going to take this this local thing. We're going to encrypt it using, you know, for example, your password, and then we're going to put this local thing over there in the cloud, right? And then you're going to get a new local thing, and you're going to download the thing from the cloud and decrypt it with your password, and boom, you're good. A lot of steps, and there are a lot of things that can go wrong. And if somebody gets that password, now the thing is in the it's a, it can create all sorts of problems. So I think I think Google was in a, in a sense wise to prevent that from happening in the way that they have. Now that said, it creates exactly the problem that you described, right? Uh, which is what happens when you lose your phone. Yeah. And the nice thing about threshold cryptography, and we use this thing called threshold cryptography. I'll talk about that in a bit. The nice thing about distributed key management is. I talked about having four shards of the key, you know, four pieces of the key, piece A, piece B, piece C, and piece D. By the way, it doesn't need to be four. It could be seven. Right? And then the threshold is the number of pieces needed to reassemble. So it could be two, it could be three. Maybe maybe you ah, set it up in yeah. five of eight mode, right? But it's any, any two of four. So if you have piece A and piece B, you're good to go. If you have piece B and piece C, you're good to go. If you have piece D and piece A, you're good to go. Let's say your laptop has piece A, your phone has piece B, your tablet has piece C, and your colleague's phone has piece D, and you lose piece B, your phone. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. So what? Uh, and we actually have a neat feature. We can actually take the, the remaining pieces of the key. So now we've, we've lost piece B, but we have piece A, piece C, and piece D. And now you want to replace your phone, right? You don't want to permanently not have, you know. What we can do is we can actually reshuffle those remaining shards and create new piece A, new piece B, new piece C, new piece D from any two of the original pieces. So we can use pieces C and D to create a prime, B prime, C prime, D prime. You can reassemble and, and then you've send those the new. Yep, yep. Send those new pieces, A prime, B prime, C prime, and D prime, to the relevant devices. So A prime goes in your laptop, B prime goes in your new phone, C prime goes in your tablet, D prime goes in your colleague's phone, and boom, you're good to go. And by the way, C prime does not combine with original D. Right, it's right. a next generation. It's a brand so. new, right? It's, you, right, exactly. You, in, in a sense, that's a good way to put it. You've skipped forward a generation, in a sense, right? So, it's a terrific way of of dealing with that problem. You need that redundancy, not in case you lose a phone, but when you when yeah. phones will get lost, they will break. They it will happen if you have users. <laughs> They will lose devices. It will happen. It's a certainty. So you need to be able to to recover from that in a way that is both secure and you know relatively streamlined. And that's why I say it's not your fault because you need to really think about designing systems that, that address both of those concerns. And that's the idea behind threshold cryptography. Nice. But it's made it too because I think of like even the 
I was always mindful of the that level of protection, but in the before that was like, so even uh, my actor director, my, this is like a decade ago, you know, the way I would protect it was we would generate our root level, you know, passwords. So we always had this like kind of like the, the, the main, the top level password, you had the root access. And we would do is we would have three people. Each would be, would come up with six characters and then they would literally, we would have all three of them there. So I type my six characters. The next person types their six characters. The next person types their six characters. We repeat it again. And then we take those six characters and we put them each in a separate sealed envelope. And we would then put it into uh, a storage unit. And so when, if you, that was like, I felt like the Winklevoss twins, like roaming around the United States, planting shards of their keys for their Bitcoins, right? But it, it, for us, it was always like, you couldn't just go get it. You had to go out of your way because you had to call Iron Mountain. Like it was a situation that you knew it was a real reason not to do it. And then it made you think about every other security process you have. You're like, if this is how we're treating the top, then let's do some better stuff down the, down the middle. So that was, you know, but that was pre you know, availability of good KMS, like, you know, better use of other tools to do that type of protection. So. Yeah, and I think it also points out something interesting, which is that we have, you know, generations, thousands of years of experience in securing physical objects. Right? Whereas we have a couple of decades of experience securing bits and bytes. Right. And uh, one of the things that we've tried to do with some degree of success is translate the security of of bits and bytes into the security of physical objects to whatever degree we can. That's sort of what you've just described. And it makes people feel a lot more comfortable. First of all, it's more intuitive. It's more understandable. You right. can explain to if you're the if you're the CISO, you can explain to the CFO who may not be as technical how you've done this thing. And your explanation will make sense to the CFO. Whereas you talk about, you know, uh, good KMS, the CFO is going to be like, what's it, what's good, exactly. what's good KMS? What, what's that? How did that work? What are you talking, what are you talking about? Right. So uh, we use a SHA-256 algorithm and it gets supported. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, they're like, sorry, what? <laughs> How is that going to affect my CapEx for the coming year? Exactly. Um, so in any event, uh, I, I think the translation of, look, I think what you've described there is not so bad. It's you, you, you were doing the best with what you had. And it's what you've, you've done is you've actually made it quite secure, but you've also made it quite clumsy to recover. Right. But it's not unrecoverable. It is recoverable versus the example you gave before of, you know, Google authenticator before, un, without the backup. Right. Yeah. Uh, recoverable you know distributed key management is the what i would describe as sort of the more sophisticated version of what you had implemented with your iron mountain split root password scheme and your I, I like i actually like your iron mountain split root password scheme i think that's you know fine right it's just sort of a, a royal pain in the neck and kind of makes people a little nervous and stuff like that but distributed key management in you know in the context of what I'm describing 
is is intended to fill that gap. It's intended to achieve the the same goal, but uh, do it in a way that's you know easier to do, easier to to, to address if there's a if, if something goes wrong. Um, you know, just as secure, uh, maybe not as understandable, maybe not as intuitive to the CFO, but probably sufficiently intuitive. You could explain it, uh, and that'll get you there. Not that's that's the goal of what what we've done. What one one of the goals? Yeah. Well, it, the thing that comes up with this, like we we think the first thing you have to do is not just relate the solution, but relate it to the asset you're protecting. So, I mean, we can talk about corporate assets, it's files, it's personally identifiable information, it's customer information, whatever it's going to be. But that's like, so as a general use case, and I wouldn't mind exploring stuff that's, you know, maybe outside the wheelhouse of, of out of common directly right now, but what if that asset you're protecting, what if that file is a money asset, right? So Bitcoin and, and you know, crypto coin and cryptocurrency, Suddenly, and I, I use the sort of the Winklevoss description for anybody that hasn't read Bitcoin Billionaires by Ben Mesrick. It's a fantastic story. And, and it's it, it, but this is the level we got to go to because I I don't have TD to protect my account necessarily, you know, or like they've got their layers of protection. Well, a Bitcoin, like, do I store an offline wallet? Do I, what, what do I keep in my online wallet? Do I write my keys down and separate? Like, I'd, I'd love to get your take. On on why most people are about to make big mistakes with how they protect their their crypto assets. Oof. That's a big topic. Okay. <laughs> I know we need a no, whole no, hour no, on no, that no, one. No, 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 no. Let, 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 let me let me do my best with it. Security for 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 uh, uh, keys for uh, crypto assets is is a darn mess. Um. I'm getting on. I'm getting a, a notification here that says that my internet is weak and that I should be prioritizing audio over video. Yeah, luckily we can still hear you. I've lost this. Okay. I've lost the 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 video for the moment, but uh, you're you're coming through loud and clear on the. Right, I'm actually gonna. I'm, I'm gonna stop the video for a moment until until this thing goes away. Yeah, all good. I don't want it to. There you go. I'll, I'll turn it back on when I. Um, okay. So. Crypto assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these other things are our bearer assets. And the the bearer asset is your private key, right? It's your private key to sign that transaction to enable you to move that Bitcoin from you know address A to address B. That's what that's what these things are. And you lose that private key, you're toast. Somebody else gets that private key, you're toast. And that creates all sorts of problems. Uh, we've never had a situation in the past where money uh, or you know a money-like asset whatever you want to call it is based on possession of a private key and you know here comes the, the this strong desire to try and translate security of bits and bytes into physical security that's what everyone wants to do and it, I, I, that that intuition is not crazy you know it, it makes sense it's very difficult to do what i will say is that uh you know it, you know, built into Bitcoin, built into Ethereum is the concept of multi-sig, where you have the ability to, to generate multiple keys and to require multiple signatures, you know, some threshold, right, two of three, three of five, pick, pick your threshold right, in, in order to affect the transaction. Right. And that's a good solution. 
right? That's a good solution. But then you have to figure out where you store where you store those keys. So it's it's so they have sort of built in distributed key management. Now beyond that, you could also do distributed key management uh, just with one key and then cutting that key into shards, and you effectively get you effectively get the same thing. Um, and either way you do it. And what I what I also say is that some of the earliest uh, you know Bitcoin wallets going back to 2012, maybe even 2011. That's uh, right. It was a thing before it was a thing. People forget that. <laughs> well, I, I, I will tell you. I'll tell you right now. The one that I'm thinking of was was, was a wallet called uh, Bitcoin Armory. Really good wallet. Uh, it used to call it the Cadillac of Bitcoin wallets, I believe. Uh, and that thing had built into it Shamir's secret sharing scheme for the backup of keys. Shamir's secret sharing scheme is one of the sort of the classic threshold cryptography algorithm by a guy named Adi Shamir, Adi Shamir of Shamir of RSA, <laughs> right? That's the, that's the S in RSA. A very famous cryptographer, brilliant human being. Uh, and he, you know, he came up with this thing called Shamir's secret, yeah. Try and say it five times. <laughs> Shamir's exactly. secret sharing scheme. Shamir's secret sharing scheme. Anyway. As it makes um, it secure, you can't even say the name. <laughs> you can't even say it. Right? You can't even say it. Right? Uh, so, look, I think I think what you're talking about is that, you know, the, the security of crypto assets and how best to do that presents a tremendous challenge. And the, there are, I think, two big approaches. Right? One is keep your keys offline, which you can do, right? And there are hardware devices out there today, uh, Trezor, Ledger, uh, Cold Card. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole slew of them that'll enable you to keep your device keep your keys offline. And some of the classic Bitcoin wallets can be run uh, can be run offline if you know how to do it. And sort of that's a more technical thing, a kind of a pain in the neck. Not not for the average Joe probably. Right. Uh, and then you've kept your keys offline. But then you have this other problem of well, what if you lose that thing? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what yeah. if you lose it? What if you lose that thing? And that's where I think where I think the use of threshold cryptography can come into play, right? So the, the the way to mitigate that is to split that thing, right? Split that key into pieces and use a threshold cryptography like system in order to do that. And the combination of threshold cryptography plus uh, offline key management gives you pretty strong security and pretty good redundancy at the same time. And that is the approach that I would recommend if someone said, you know, I have a whole boatload of Bitcoin, how should I secure it? And my answer would be a com the combination of you know, offline, you keep it with cold storage, so to speak, and distributed key management. So you, and there, there are a slew of different ways to combine those two things, but you'd combine those two things and that's how you'd have a, a very strong security. You could use one of those two things and you'd be, you know, in far, far better shape than you would be just with an online wallet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, there are a lot of ways to do it. The default for those who I think are, are a little less technical is to leave their crypto assets in the custody in the, you know, in the storage, I'm not going to use the word custody because I don't like that word in this context, in the storage system of an exchange. And we have seen that 
go awry so many times. Right. And you have no recourse. <laughs> There's no, you are toast. There is nothing you can do. Um, that's the thing that I would recommend avoiding like the plague. Don't please, please don't store your crypto assets. Don't store your Bitcoin. Don't store your Ethereum with an exchange. Please don't do it. If you are insufficiently experienced, and that's not a knock on anybody. I mean, this stuff is complicated. No, it's that's great. it. It's, it's, it's a different. it's an algorithmically challenging problem that is. There are more people trying to break it than to make it. <laughs> yes, it's the biggest bug bounty in the world, right? I mean, you figure there's the Bitcoin is the biggest bug bounty in the world. Figure find find a bug, find a way to steal coin. And that's it, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the whole thing is like what I would, Mount Gox wasn't an anomaly because it was broken. It's an anomaly that it's the only one we know of. Right? <laughs> like, oh, there are so many more that we know of. That's yeah. the thing that's not well publicized. There was a paper. I wish I could dig it out. Maybe I could dig it out and send it to you after after this of the sort of like the average life of a Bitcoin exchange. Now this is from a few years ago, and I think the exchange ecosystem has become somewhat more stable, at least in, in Western, you know, in, in developed market countries. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but it was some very short amount of time. It was like a year and a half. And then either the exchange gets shut down or it gets hacked or some, some God awful thing happens and then you're toast. And, uh, Mount Gox is the most famous one, but there are so many others that you know where some you know where where something you know what was the uh, um what am, what am I thinking of? Um, I can't I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. There were two others that are like that are fairly large that had incidents. Um, one that 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 operates largely in it. I can't think of it right now. I'll try enough. Shoot your note after the, after yeah, the yeah. show, and you can put them in the show notes if you want. But the, these incidents happen all the time. But even for, even more, even even worse than that, it's not just an incident that could happen at the at the level of the exchange, but at the level of the user. So if someone gets a user's credentials, then they're going to get into the user's account on the exchange and just steal the user's assets and the exchange is you know is going to say it's not our fault you used weak credentials right and this is where stuff like sim hacking comes into play you have any any exchange that even permits the use of sms as a second <laughs> factor is doing something that is in my view irresponsible but some of them still do uh you know and then somebody gets sim hacked and then you're just you, you know you're you're out of luck so what I was going to let me summarize all this without me going on a giant rant on your on your on, on a podcast it doesn't make sense to go on a giant rant. <laughs> That's summary. what it's for. That's why I go yeah, long form. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Summary: Please don't keep your Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else stored with an exchange. Just don't do it. Instead, you know, uh, go on Amazon and buy a ledger or a Trezor or something else. There are an abundance of other solutions that nowadays don't require a tremendous amount of technical knowledge and can be utilized by someone who's just sort of an, an enthusiast, right? But not necessarily someone who who uh, has a, a degree in has a degree in computer science. Yes, and those solutions are abundant. 
and I guess that's the trick is like there, there probably, it's been a long time since it would have been hard to explain banking as a new thing. But at one point there was probably that same conversation of like, now, wait a second. So I've got my gold over here and you're going to take it and you're going to put it somewhere and you're going to write down that I got this much gold and then I can get it when I need it. And like, I don't trust this. Like that, that's literally centuries you know, of distance from that. So it's funny that we have to reintroduce this idea that there's a lot of people out here where this will not be intuitive for, but those are probably mm -hmm. people that shouldn't be dabbling in crypto exchanges and, and cryptocurrency in general. You know, it's not exactly a mass market appeal at the moment. Or well, I, I guess uh, it's, how do I, I, I should, that's a weird statement. It shouldn't be because of the, there's a lot of stuff wrapped around it. You know, the average person shouldn't be taking their stimulus check and going on the Coinbase and buying crypto. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. it may work out, but uh, it, it works out as well as a slot machine. Fair, but the problem is the average person does, right? right. <laughs> this is yeah, the yeah. thing, <laughs> right? So if you're, you know, harm reduction, right? If, so if the average person is going to take this stimulus check and go on to Coinbase and buy a bunch of Bitcoin, what can we do to try and prevent them from losing what they purchased, right? right? Yeah. And that's where I would say, you know, go get go get one of these hardware devices, or go you know, go find one of the many other ways of of keeping your your Bitcoin secure that involve keeping your keys offline or using some sort of multi-sig or distributed key management system. Uh, and, and there are things out there that don't have the level of technical sophistication requirements that uh, would would be inaccessible to that average person who used, you know, used their stimulus check to purchase Bitcoin. And by the way, I don't begrudge that. People no, no, and want, it's funny. Right? It's always yeah, it's, like, it's such yeah, a funny yeah. thing that I, 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 I always pick these poor examples that are they're real, but they're it's unfortunate re unfortunately real. I'll say is the description of it. Because right. The unfortunate part is that people end up getting victimized. Right. That's right. right. And I, I absolutely agree that 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 is tremendously unfortunate. And we should those of us who operate in the in the security community should really try our best to to help folks. <laughs> prevent prevent the prevent, prevent themselves from becoming victims and uh i'm i'm happy to do that and people ask my advice and i do the best that i can to provide you know reasonable reasonable guidance and i'm not you know i'm not a genius here i just tell them sort of the basics of what i know and i think that those basics will get you a great distance uh relative to you know, sort of what people what people know offhand which is kind of not that much well, and I, I think of it as like, it's it's like common sense weight management techniques. I'm not trying to teach you how to fast and go down to four hours a day of an eating window and, and keto manage your intake. And like, mo people won't do it because it's complex. It's the same over here in this situation, right? But if you tell them, hey, look, kind of keep track of what you eat and keep track of what you do. And one should be better than the other. Oh, okay, I can kind of work that out. <laughs> it, like, if we can give that level of comfort to people, it gives us a chance to more broadly adopt the ecosystem. And then the technology will catch up to the usability and the user experience will be smoother. And then more of the traditional 
non-technical consumer will be able to easily participate in these markets. Which is, I think, I mean, that's why it's, I mean, we're right at the time we're recording this, it's buoyed up to about a 51K for a single Bitcoin. You know, God knows what that poor fellow who paid for his dominoes with, with Bitcoin, what it would, would be worth at the moment. But it's, huh. it, it is, a, it's an odd ecosystem. I, I'm excited by it, but I'm also like, I'm sitting on the outside in a weird way, kind of waiting for the weirdness to happen to remind people that. It's uh, you know, decentralized markets like this and, and free markets, they are, we have a dependency that the financial market is stable and structured. It's, it's almost accidental that it was. <laughs> sure. And then you add, sure. you add technology to it. You add, you know, the ability to create, you know, so again, it's, I say this as, I'm excited. I dig into it. I understand it a bit more than maybe, you know, many folks would. And I understand the sort of frivolity of me diving into the market and treating it as measurable and predictable. Most people don't have, they just think like, I'm going to buy Bitcoin. It's going to go up by 200 times because, you know, I hear about it all the time. And are they going to Robinhood? And that was the funny thing. Like people wondered, like, why did Robinhood stop? You know, trading on GameStop. Well, because Robinhood is a regulated in a regulated industry and they could no longer capitalize their trades. So they had to stop trading. It wasn't because they were trying to stop people from buying GameStop. They had to stop people. That was the one that was going to put them over the edge. The unfortunate part was they chose not to say that until they had stopped trading on it for a couple of days. And then they said, oh, by the way, here's the actual reason why we had to do that because we were undercapitalized and we would have been on the wrong side of regulatory compliance. So, I mean, but that's, that's why I like this sort of wild West, you know, you don't have to be a, a fan of Charlie Shrem to believe that there's going to be some real people doing interesting things that may be uh, dancing a careful line and they may dance on the wrong side of the line a little too often. People are doing very interesting things. I think it's a fascinating ecosystem. There's an ecosystem that I've been, you know, following in one sense or another for, any wow 10 years <laughs> it's amazing um, eh wow. like that's it, it yeah. seems like it's not that long ago but it it it's a decade uh, that this has been an it's active a ecosystem right <clears throat> it's a decade and uh, you know it, it's it has matured tremendously over that decade but that doesn't mean that it, that that the wild westy feel to it has dissipated uh, uh, on the contrary i would say the, the wild westy feel to it has just changed in 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 the components that are wild westy right versus you know back in the day i think there were more exchanges for example that were wild westy right and now perhaps there are fewer exchanges that are wild westy but there are nowadays there are sort of more instruments that are wild westy right you have all this d5 stuff you know, you have all you know all this stuff uh, that that isn't at first first we just had bitcoin now we have more assets than i can count uh and that's sort of uh, in a sense the more wild westy we have distributed exchanges and sort of wild westy in a sense yeah uh and the wild west was a, an incredible place insofar as you could make a lot of money and you could also be killed <laughs> <laughs> that's right and, right 
Uh, and uh, I don't know what the, I can't tell you what the probability was of making a lot of money. And I can't tell you what the probability was of getting killed, but I knew both of those things happen on a regular basis. Right. So, and, and that's what attracts people, I think, is, uh, is it's exciting, it's interesting, it's new, it's different. And that, great. You know, we're all sitting, we're all sitting on, you know, at home nowadays, stuck in our houses, right? We should be doing something that's exciting, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, I, I certainly understand that. Um, and there are many other reasons, you know, many other, this is too, too big. So it's a very big topic. Um, many other reasons for people to, to get involved in the, in the Bitcoin and, and crypto asset ecosystem. Um, you know, besides just the fact that it's quote exciting. Um, but I think <clears throat> bottom line, people will use their stimulus checks in this way. Of course they will. Yeah. And uh, I think it, it's it, it, it's a tremendously important thing for the security community to do, you know, for us to to sort of focus on how can we tell people to keep them, how how can we help people keep themselves secure? And yeah. So that's sort of my take on it. Yeah, no, it's good. Bet you didn't think you'd wake up this morning, be sitting in your laundry room talking about the, the downfalls of cryptocurrency and stimulus check usage. <laughs> How's that for well, a Well, you never know. <laughs> I, I stopped predicting a long time ago. Well, and you know, given your background, you, you came from, from the finance world. So it it is interesting that you are truly kind of like the triad of all the things that are important in this ecosystem because you understand the finance side of it. You understand how traditional markets work. You also understand the technology of security. And then in the midst of that, you're a pretty darn good behaviorist. So it's, it is interesting to, there are not many people who have that kind of understanding like you do and, and, I'm excited by, you know, first, you know, I say just out of commas in general, like the, the problem you're solving is, is tough and I know it, but it's fantastic in the way that you're, you're doing it. And then, you know, beyond this thing, you know, cause you're, you're young. So in the next decade, I kind of predict you're going to be doing some pretty fantastic things in other ecosystems as well. Well, so thank you. Um, I kind of round tripped it in a sense, insofar as I started out more in the in the in the tech in the tech world. Uh, you know, I was always a, a, sort of a, a tinkerer and into you know math and science and computers when I was a, when I was a kid. I always thought that would be what I did. You know, quote when I grow up, unquote. Uh, and you know, when I was in college, I studied physics and studied electrical engineering. Um, so, and I figured I'd come out and I ended up being an engineer. Uh, so I, you know, and, you know, always knew how to, how to write a, a few tidbits of, of code poorly. <laughs> so, <laughs> the bug. Right? I, I wouldn't trust myself to write the code. You know, nowadays I'm the CEO. I, we have tons of terrific developers and, uh, I understand what they write, but I don't trust myself to write it because it'll just have bugs and crash. Um, but yeah, so I think, I, you know, and then I ended up going into traditional finance, not quantitative finance, but rather, you know, traditional finance. Um, you're working for a bunch of investment funds and then ended up kind of looking at a lot of Bitcoin stuff and stuff like that. Uh, and then ended up running a software company. So that's why I say I sort of round tripped it. Um, 
I think that the, the you know the next decade is going to be such a tremendous time for for advances in uh, in the way we think about capital markets uh, and the way we think about finance in general. Uh, I think that the the addition of of Bitcoin and crypto assets to the fray and some of the things that have happened in the in that context are demonstrative of sort of demand from the market that remains unfulfilled. And let me give you an example. Let me tell you sort of talk a little more about what I mean by that so it's not so abstract. Back in you know 2017, 2018, we saw this big craze of ICOs. And what's an ICO, right? It's really a mechanism of capital formation. It's a mechanism for people to raise money. Now you could say the token is a utility token and it's going to be used in the ecosystem that the, that the you know that the developers are building. Okay, and that the profit model is different. It's not based on it, you know, it's not a traditional operating business income statement based business model where you have revenue and you have expenses and then you have profits. Instead, we're going to use this thing and the system and by virtue of the fact that we're using it the value of the token is going to increase okay maybe or maybe we just needed maybe the world just needed a way for people to raise capital without all the constraints of the traditional financial services ecosystem which makes it a royal pain in the neck to raise capital if you think you know you're the average if you if you run a dry cleaner Right, you're you run a mom and pop shop dry cleaner, and you want to raise money. You can't yeah. go around with a piece of paper and say, "Hey, I'm raising money," and staple that to a bunch of telephone poles uh, with your phone number and say, "Hey, I'm raising money. Give me a call." That's illegal. That's a general solicitation, and the SEC prohibits that. And that, I mean, if you think about it, it's 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 a little it's a little extreme. You know, mom and pop, mom and pop can't raise money to, to expand their dry cleaner by putting posters on on telephone poles. Like you could put lost dog posters on there, right? Um, but if you if you want to do this basic thing, you can't do it. And those restrictions are those restrictions were were the birth of the venture capital ecosystem. Right. Why do we have venture capitalists? Why does this exist at all? It, it's not because necessarily they're great at picking businesses. It's because it, people who wanted to raise money for a new thing needed someplace to go. They can't put up a sign in Times Square right. and say, "Hey, I'm I, I want to raise money." That's illegal. So you have these you have these you know investors to whom you can solicit, and it, it is legal. And what you've done is you've created this very you've created this very tightened ecosystem. You've created this very tightened area in which people can raise money, and that changes the cost of capital. That makes it more expensive to raise money. It makes it more difficult. Uh, and it, 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 what it does is it stymies innovation. And innovation, if fewer people can create startups, you will have fewer startups. If you have fewer startups, you will have fewer success stories. If you have fewer success stories, you will have reduced economic growth you'll have you'll have fewer people who who get to celebrate the fact that they've built something terrific and so you know why am i why am i let me bring this full circle 
So what did ICOs do? They short-circuited that. They basically, ICOs were in many ways regulatory arbitrage. You know, you used the Ethereum blockchain to create an ERC-20 token and then you sold the thing and you raised a bunch of money for your thing. Now, most of the things that ended up being capitalized through this process ended up being garbage. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. The, real, they were the pirates of the world. They were the first ones that were like, yeah. I'm just going to try to wing it. <laughs> Let's just see if this works. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, it, it, you know, most of that stuff ended up being garbage. But what it showed is that there is this sort of, I hate the phrase pent up demand, but I'll use it, pent up demand for the ability to raise capital on a general solicitation basis without all of the constraints applied by you know, regulators and the traditional capital markets and all this stuff, all of this dead weight that we don't need. And you know, one of the reasons why I think the next decade is gonna be fascinating is the advent of, of you know, using a, a public blockchain, right? Like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, right? for, for these sorts of purposes opens up a slew of possibilities. And I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what we're gonna see. We've recently seen this whole craze of non-fungible tokens. And uh, yes, now, I was gonna say, right. NFTs are the, are the next thing where we can go on this one. Right. Now, personally, I think it's a little bit goofy. I just, I get it. I get it. I, I think it's a little bit, I get it. I think it's a little bit goofy, but I think it just goes to show, right? There's, there is a, there is a desire for deligi- for, for digital collectibles, right? right? Th- that desire exists. Now, how best can we fulfill that desire? Right. But we had no way at all of fulfilling that desire before. Now we have sort of what I'll describe as like a kind of clumsy way of doing it, right? So what comes next, right? Well, now that we know that the desire is there, maybe some entrepreneur comes and shows up and says, okay, I'm gonna find a better way to do this. So uh, there's my diatribe on, on, on you know, the, the crypto ecosystem and what I think it, it really demonstrates, which is that there are all these different possibilities and we, we haven't had the, the tools necessary to to demonstrate what the pent up demand is like what is you know what is there demand for right <clears throat> there's demand for all these things and the emergence of the crypto ecosystem is one of the things that enabled us to see the, you know what is there pent up demand for yeah and, and and that's just it right if we we haven't experienced the beginning of an ecosystem in a long time and the there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of very weird and interesting stuff around regulatory uh, boundaries around it. Like there is no FDIC for crypto exchanges. Like there there's a lot of work to to create one. Then it's the it becomes the the counterbalance, but it's not really a counterbalance because it's generally a little more heavily weighted than the consumer side. It, there's a lot of very interesting areas, and like you said, yeah, NFTs. Hey, look! I'd rather somebody pay two six two point six million dollars for Jack Dorsey's first tweet than they're out in Africa hunting elephants for tusks. If you're going to collect weird stuff, I'd, I'd rather you collect Jack's old tweets. <laughs> like, That's true. It, so it, it's an interesting time. It is a and wow, you! I said you you can cover a lot of ground. This has been a fantastic discussion, and thanks very much, Daniel, for taking the time. I. Uh, 
I could My spend pleasure. all day digging into more of this stuff, but uh, so uh, Atacama, really cool, uh, doing neat stuff. We'll have links, of course, in the show notes. And if folks want to connect with you and want to want to find out more and 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 chat on various things, where's the best place to reach you? Oh, you could you could ping me through through our website, which is Atacama.com, A-T-A-K-A-M-A.com. We're a uh, we are a, a small but growing team, and if you if you leave a message there. I am likely to get it. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been, been a lot of fun. I, the, as, as I'll, I'd love to reconnect as this ecosystem continues to heat up and evolve and, you know, both to hear, you know, how you're doing at Atacama and uh, yeah, because you've got such a broad knowledge on, on this stuff is we see the world is going to be very interesting as the, the world opens up, the crypto world opens up. Uh, a lot of things are going to change in the coming year and definitely in the coming decade. I agree. And it's going to be a fascinating, it's going to be fascinating to watch and fascinating for those who can participate and for those who choose to participate. And uh, hopefully they can stay secure while they're doing it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's going to be terrific. It is going to be a wild time, but uh, wild in the right ways. Thing, like you said, I love this description that it, you know, the Wild West created fantastic opportunities. And then from there, you know, it, we, we had the settlers and, and then a lot of, a lot of time happens, but as the settlers settle and, and the world evolves around it, but you got to start with the wild west somehow. That's right. Awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure.